Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Welcome. I'm doing so well. I didn't know that you knew all of them songs, right? Because I'm like, I think that was a little bit before your time. But I mean, are you like a music head or something? Listen, What's up with that? Not even a music head, but I just love TV. So my parents used to let me watch Soul, Ch- or Soul Train when I was really little. Mm. Um, and that turned into 106 and Park. And, you know, I would just watch videos all day, every day. And I'm also very competitive. So. Oh, so you are competitive. Interesting. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, it is exciting to, you know, have you here tonight. And I'm so excited because you're doing your thing. You got your new book coming out. I think it comes out tomorrow, right? Or is it? It actually came out on Tuesday. On Tuesday. I love it. New book just dropped and your first stop is here with Southern Soul. I am so, so excited. And since I got a pre-release copy, I have read it and I just want to let you know, you know, I've never, I tell people, so many people I told this, I've never opened a book, flipped through the table of contents and it made me want to read every single chapter. I was like, no, start here, start here, start here. I was just so excited, but we're going to get into that later. Let me introduce our speaker. And since you have a short bio, I'm going to actually going to read it. So uh, I'm from Texas, so um, I'm going to say this my way. Kira Imani Williams, Esquire, is co-founder of the Auditory Museum, a company specializing in communication and corporate storytelling. She is graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law, received her bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia in 2011 with a major in political science, specifically focusing in politics and media. Y'all, she's worked at all kinds of places from PBS, MTV, Fox News, you know, Disney and Student Press Law Center. And she is a new author of a new book. I think your first book entitled Therapy Isn't Just for White People. Thank you for being here. How you doing? I'm doing so well. I'm so excited to be here. I also, I guess since you had that bio, another update, I'm a radio host. I'm... Oh. Um, so I'm leaving this podcast and jumping straight on air. Oh, awesome. So you have to um, tell us where we can find you and we'll drop that in the chat so people can follow you. Yeah. KBLA 1580 AM. It's a talk radio show here in LA, but you can also download the app and listen from anywhere in the world. It's have a smiley's station. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So let's get started. Tell us about you. You know, we like to call it your origin story, right? Tell us about you and where you grew up. So I grew up in South little bit all over, started in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, moved to Georgia, spent some time in Atlanta, then Augusta, then was in Maryland for a second and came back to Virginia. But I claim to be a Virginia girl because I was there for about 20 years of my life. I was a very Southern girl at heart as a little girl. I also grew up going to all white schools. I went to an all white Christian private school. Uh, So it wasn't until a little bit later in my life that I actually went on this journey to kind of discover identity and who I was as a Black woman. And I think for a lot of people, if you've always grown up around people of your race, you don't necessarily think about it. And I didn't, it didn't really cross my mind that I was so far removed from that piece of myself until 
I was around other black people and I was like, Ooh, I got some stuff to work out. Oh, wow. You know, you know, I just get so excited just because I love a story, but I also love when people find their story. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I can only imagine you were just living your life. Right. And all of a sudden these things start happening. Right. But you know, before we get into that, you know, I want to backdrop a little bit on, well, actually, you've already told us about this. Tell us about my favorite part of your story is your first therapy session, right? Because you, you say you got some things to figure out, right? And some kind of way you end up like at this therapy type moment, right? You know, tell us about your first therapy session and how did you even get there? Tell us about it. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up Christian, again, very Southern. And so the answer to every problem was always prayer, you're too blessed to be stressed. You got to pray it away, take it to Jesus, lay it at the cross, therapy, mental health practice. It was not even in my vocabulary. I associated therapy with crazy people, uh, but more specifically, crazy white people, because I didn't know any black people in therapy. Um, yeah, just I had never even considered it. It wasn't until much later in life that I was really struggling with anxiety. So I've you know, been probably having panic attacks in high school. I just didn't really know that's what it was at the time. I just thought there was something wrong with me. Um, and you know, we're going to the doctor trying to figure out, is it a thyroid issue? Is it a heart issue? Why do I keep getting short of breath? I you know, chalked it up to very physical things, was completely unaware of the effect our mental state has on our physical state, of course, at the time. Um, so I wouldn't have said that I had an issue, but it just got to the point where it was debilitating. I was anxious and worried all the time. And I would do what I would call get on the anxiety train and just ride it, right? Like I start worrying about something and it tunnels and tunnels and tunnels and it's like a runaway train and it was so hard to get off and I couldn't stop worrying. And so I finally had a friend who was like, you know, you've you missed a day at work because you've just been in bed really anxious and you're so set in your doom and gloom and thinking about worst case scenario. Like it might be good for you to talk to a therapist. Brought it up the second time and I was like, you know what? Let me just see what this therapy thing is. Like, I, I guess I'll go. Of course, I didn't tell anybody because why would you tell somebody therapies for crazy people? So I was very intentional in looking up therapists here in Los Angeles and was very fortunate to find a black woman who was around my age and she was cute. And I was like, okay, she looks like a friend. I wanted to go to somebody that felt like a friend because I couldn't stomach being across from somebody who didn't feel safe. I want someone who looks like me. So I found this girl on the internet showed up to my first session. And I was like, look, here's the deal. I'm not crazy. I don't have any trauma. I don't have anything wrong in my past. We don't need to start digging about what happened to me as a kid. Nothing happened to me. Okay. I'm very self-aware. I read a lot of self-help books. I just have this anxiety problem and I just need you to help me with that. And she was like, mm-hmm, of course. <laughs> and now, obviously, go, having been through and still continuing to go through the process, I realized how silly that was. But I remember very early on in our sessions, we were having a conversation about life and marriage. And I was talking about a guy I was dating at the time. And I was like, well, I just don't know if I'm going to be married by 30. Like, I'm not going to be married. And I'm not going to have kids. And that's going to throw off my life plan. I have all these other things. And, you know, was just spiraling, but just out loud, like I generally do in my mind. And she stopped me and was like, wait, who told you you had to be married by 30? And the question just took me off guard. I was so set back because I had never even asked my question myself where that came from. I just thought it was a rule. 
and just in conversation started to realize I had created so many rules for myself that weren't real based on societal expectations, based on just what I'd seen growing up. And of course, I was of the belief, oh, your parents are still married. You can't possibly have any trauma from growing up. But one of the things I learned in therapy is that a lot of times for anyone who has high achieving parents or parents who have been able to accomplish something, and even just as Black people on a macro level, the people who came before us were amazing. They were walking on the front lines and, you know, laying people, it can actually lead to some, you know, internal trauma that says, I'm not measuring up. I'm not good enough. How come they could do it? And I couldn't do it. What's wrong with me? So the trauma, and when I use the word trauma, I use the definition by Dr. Anita Phillips, who says that trauma is anything that negatively affects the way you see yourself, God, others, and the world around you. And when you think about that, we all have a lot of trauma. So it really just became a process that was very hard for me. And I remember sitting in front of my therapist when she asked me that question and just bawling. And it wasn't about the question. I think it was just this large realization that I'd been living my life based off all these rules and had all this unresolved trauma and all these stories that I had just buried and told myself weren't relevant. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You know, confession. You know, I I love your story for many reasons. And one of the main reasons why I love your story is because I, too, have struggled with anxiety over a period of time. And I remember I was doing some um, research and I had bought this, you know, big CD set back then. And, you know, I remember listening to it and I found something new. And what I found is what you just said is that, hey, you know, this thing about anxiety, it doesn't necessarily affect everybody. So, you know, and then I saw so some other research, you know, you, you talked about the high achieving, the parents. And then, you know, as an engineer, I started realizing, well, like, oh, from this education session I was doing that, you know, scientific minded, you know, very driven people are the type of people who can suffer from anxiety. So I call up my buddy. We went to engineering school. I'm like, hey, man, I discovered this thing. You know, it's really good. Life is good. But you got to realize, man, I suffer from anxiety and I'm excited because I now understand it all makes sense. Right. And I said, well, dude, you're kind of like me because you're, you know, a high achiever and you're competitive. And he's like, no, dude, I don't think that's me. I'm like, why? He's like, have you not realized how complacent I am? I'm like, huh? He says, dude, I'm too complacent to be um, have anxiety, be stressed. And it hit me with his personality. He's that type of guy who never, ever, ever gets excited about anything, right? And it hit me, wow, the things that, you know, I saw every day, I didn't have a name for it. So I can only imagine your story. You were seeing these things every day and you were like, you thought it was somebody else. Cause I look at you and I don't even see anxiety, but you knowing yourself and I can only imagine the feeling and the experience of being able to really understand what was going on. Yeah, I think being able to put words to something is really important. And what's so funny is we have this idea where we're constantly trying to equate our mental health to our success, which is a fallacy. We see celebrities and high achievers all the time who suffer from anxiety, depression, drug addiction, suicide attempts. We know that they're not related. And for a lot of people who are high achieving, it can actually be what I've learned a defense mechanism because you don't want to deal with the feelings or the trauma or whatever else is going on inside you. So to create some quick endorphins, you achieve something. You're like, well, that felt good. And then you choose something else. And you're like, well, that felt good. So you never actually take the time to deal with what's going on inside. And I was definitely on that path. OMG. I call that addicted to success. 
how, I mean, I had this plan. I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to get the MBA and then I'm going to do engineering. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm like, OMG, you get it. How about this? When did you learn that you really, really needed help? Like, was there a moment or a turning point, you know, when, you know, you just kind of like, wait, you know, because I don't think you've always saw it so clearly, right? Was there a moment where you just kind of had this aha moment that, oh, yeah, I think I need help? Yeah, I, for I think a lot of people struggle with mental health generally. Feelings are fluid, right? So you go from being happy to sad and angry and they're human emotions. And in some ways, they're great because they're indicators. They force us to kind of slow down and pay attention. But if it gets to the point where it's disrupting your life, like when it got to the point where I had to call out a day of work or my friends are like, what's going on? Or I had a friend just kind of stop by randomly and break in my room like, hey, are you alive in there? That's when I knew, okay, I have to do something about this because even as a high achiever, you will only be able to achieve so much if you're not operating as the best version of myself. And I always say, I pray that God give me the character and the strength and the wisdom to sustain the opportunity. But if you're having an anxiety attack or, you know, just dealing with some unresolved stuff, it's going to actually prevent you from being able to show up as your full self in your confidence, in your power. Awesome. Awesome. How about this? What are some, you know, challenges, experiences and lessons learned? Because I think, you know, I love how you came into your awareness, right? In addition to coming into awareness, you're like, OK, I think I'm some change. I think something's really going. I need to go out and, you know, get some help. You know, for the audience out there, have you had any like experiences or lessons learned that you would like to kind of share just just from your journey of really realizing that mental health and therapy was a real deal, a thing? Yeah, I think the the biggest one I would say is that in order for me to do a lot of learning, and when I say learning, learning about myself, if, if money's not an issue, society's not an issue, parents aren't an issue, religion isn't an issue, who are you at your core? What do you love? Like, who did God create you to be? Like remembering what, what makes you smile? What are you passionate about? But in order to even get to that space of learning, I had to do a lot of unlearning, which can be really hard. I listened to someone the other day uh, talk about the reticular activation system, RAS, and the way it works in our brain is that every time we're presented with information that pushes back against what we've been taught or what we also be always believed, we kind of block it out as a defense mechanism. So the immediate response is that's not true. So even my therapist telling me there's no specific age you have to get married in order to protect myself and my life plan. I was like, that's not true. I have to get married at a certain age because I have to have kids at a certain age because I'm a woman at 35 and, da, 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 and it's going to be. And so I, there was so, so many voices in my head. So I had to do a lot of time unlearning a lot of what I had absorbed about the world, really just unwritten rules that don't exist anywhere before I could even go through the process of reconstructing what it is I believe about the world and who I believe I am. Oh, I just love that one. Uh, you know, this is awesome, right? I just feel like it's therapeutic just talking to you, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking about as you talking about these unwritten rules of society. It reminds me of that movie, The Matrix, you know what I mean? Where it's like this whole, you know, perspective of what is real and what isn't. And I like the way you tell your story is the advice you give the audience is that, whoa, if money, you know, career, education, all this stuff, family is not a factor, who are you? What? Strip down to your core. Who are you at your core without, if you were to take away every title, mother, father, teacher, engineer, lawyer, radio host, you were to take away all of those titles. Who are you at your core? 
Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Because, you know, I just think about the blessing of being able to do that, right? Because a part of, I, I call us, the, I have a dream generation. You know, there was a big dream and, you know, we went out to achieve that dream. And, and achieving that dream, we just took on so much burden, so much weight in achieving the education and the career and the success. And not many people have been able to do that. But you can. You can do it right now. You can say, well, who am I? I'm going to keep that one because that one's a good, I like that one. Let's talk about your book. Why did you write the book, Therapy Ain't Just for White People? Did I say it right? No, I said it right. Therapy Ain't Just for White People. Basically. (laughs) So why did I write the book? I don't believe that it was a choice. I sat down at the computer. I always knew I'd be a writer. I've always loved writing. I thought that I was going to be telling a fiction story, but it just didn't feel right to tell somebody else's story without digging into my story. Because as I thought through, you know, if you've ever sat down to write a book or even thought about fiction, there's a lot of character development. So you have to go through, you know, what makes my character tick? What are her fears? What are her traumas? What does she respond to? How is she going to evolve over time? And I was like, how am I going to sit in the depth of these fake characters that I'm creating and not even be honest about my own journey? And it kind of just took off from there, turned into something completely different than I thought it was going to be. Awesome. Awesome. How did it feel when you were done? Like, did did you feel like any closure, any completeness, any, hey, this is part one of my story? I'm kind of curious because, I mean, I think this is a big deal. I mean, I've read the book and it's, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh, I I thought I was going to have it here so I can read some pieces, but I forgot to grab it. But, you know, if you want to read some of it later, that would be great. But um, how did you feel when you were done? I mean, was it like closure, excitement, peace? I mean, what did you Um, feel? A lot of panic, probably. Okay. It's one thing, I think it was very therapeutic to write it, but then we live in a society when we're very hard on each other. We don't give each other space to be human. We're very quick to cancel, to judge, to decide people are are, of, are unworthy of love or not worthy of humanity because we disagree with their stance or their process. And so as I kind of just started to sit in, oh my gosh, so I wrote this story, what are people going to think about it? And I'm very vulnerable, right? Like mm-hmm. I talk about situations at work with former white coworkers who I'm sure have bought my book. And I change names for everybody for legal purposes, but I just had this fear of, oh my gosh, now my friends are going to be like, are you writing about me? Is this going to lead to a lot of hard conversations? Because most of these stories that I tell, these are stories and things that I had processed in therapy or alone. They're not things that I had done publicly, but I felt like in at least sharing them, it would give people the capacity to have some of these really hard conversations. You know, I talk about the hard relationship between white femininity and black women and just some of the really touchy stuff. I talk about some of my bad relationships with the church as a black woman and how that kind of has affected my identity, specifically white evangelicalism. And it was just really scary to think about how people would perceive all of it. Awesome. Awesome. Now, do you have a a copy close to you? Oh, I, I always have a copy close to me. Yes. If you don't mind, I would love, love, love for you to bless us with the chapter about your first black teacher. Oh, my goodness. It, it's short, but I think it's so powerful. It's so funny. Everybody has like a, a different idea about um, which chapters have affected them. And I was really surprised that a lot of people actually have been really affected by um by the hair chapters. Oh. Yeah. Let's see if I can say I think it's Mrs. Something. I forget the name you gave her. Yeah, I think I have. 
right here, 87, this is right. My family moved a lot when I was younger. We moved from New York to Virginia, then to Georgia, on to Maryland, and then back to Virginia. At each school, I was placed into the gifted and talented program. I was almost always the only black kids in this program. Occasionally, I found myself in a class with Asian and Indian students, but most of the students were white. All of my teachers were white, and eventually I came to believe that white people must just be smarter than everyone else. In the fifth grade, I attended a school called Talbot Springs in Columbia, Maryland. Although the school was predominantly white, like my prior schools, I had one of my first black teachers, Mrs. Wright, who also taught advanced math. She was confident, kind, and as far as I was concerned, a math genius. I had never known what it was like to have a teacher who looked like me. I saw myself in her textured hair and in her cinnamon brown skin. I loved watching her command the classroom. I couldn't believe that my white peers got to experience having teachers who looked like them all the time. Mrs. Wright challenged everything I believed about the intellectual superiority of white people. I knew that my mom and dad were smart, but as far as I was concerned, maybe they were just the exception. My mom graduated from a prestigious magnet high school in New York City called Bronx Science. My dad graduated from York Academy in New, Jer at, in New Jersey at just 15 years old. Until I'd met Mrs. Wright, I had never imagined that I'd meet other smart Black people like my parents. Besides being a great role model, Mrs. Wright was an advocate for my academic growth and development. A few weeks into school, she encouraged me to run for student council position as a representative of my fifth grade classroom. You're a leader, she insisted, and I believe in you. And I believe your classmates will too. She was right. My classmates chose me to represent them on the student council. As a member of the student council, I was invited to visit Washington, D.C. with the other student council members. We learned about the American political process, visited the Washington Monument, toured the Senate building. My position on the student council was one of the many leadership positions I held over the course of my educational career from elementary school through law school. After fifth grade, I didn't have any other black female teachers until college. At the beginning of each school year, I'd look at my list of teachers in anticipation, only to be disappointed when I saw a bunch of white faces. Although I had a handful of white teachers who I loved, I never quite connected with any of them the way I did with Mrs. Wright. Our relationship was special because she was like me. I recently shared my struggle growing up with my all-white teachers with my friend Kendall, who's a Black female scientist with a PhD in biomedical engineering from Cornell University. Kendall told me that she had the same experiences growing up. She seldom had the privilege of having teachers to whom she could relate. However, like me, Kendall had also had a handful of Black educators who drastically influenced her academically. She was particularly grateful to her undergraduate uh, professor, Dr. Ellis. For Kendall, Dr. Ellis made science relatable in a way that no one had before. Kendall had a head full of curly hair that looked soft as cotton candy. Instead of using generic, obscure examples, Dr. Ellis talked to Kendall about why her hair was curly and explained the science behind how chemical relaxers affect naturally curly hair. I have a lot of Black friends who have never had the experience of having a Black teacher. Many of them have spent their lives thinking they hated science or they were bad at math when really they just had a hard time connecting with their teachers. I'm thankful for Black teachers like Mrs. Wright and Dr. Ellis who helped play a role in helping Black kids like myself feel seen, heard, and understood in the classroom. O-M-G. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, such, such a blessing of a story. And it's so sincere. It's so heartfelt. And it's so real. Like even today, as my son, who's seven, goes through his education process, you know, I was just in the process of selecting teachers last week. And you must understand, as I'm selecting these teachers, I'm looking and I'm just like, 
I'm just going to leave it right there, but everything. And then, you know, just so you know, I read your chapter again. I say, see, I got to select these teachers after reading this chapters, but I want you to know that your passage influenced and affected how I consciously chose to select my son's teacher. Tell it makes a difference. I, I, I really do think about how many black kids I know, like that's very true, who thought they were just terrible in school or not smart enough or who had bad grades and they just weren't inspired. The teachers didn't use examples they related to. Their teachers didn't look like them. Everything felt so other and so foreign and how different our educational system could be if people could see themselves in their educators. Awesome. Totally agreed. Tell me this. You know, I kind of consider you a millennial, right? And last week we had a great session with two ladies who were boomers. And as boomers, we covered this topic, part one, what my eyes have seen. It's a series that we use to get people to tell their digital stories. You know, my belief of our mantra here, if we don't tell our stories, then who will? So we love and appreciate people like you who tell their stories. So they told the stories from what it was like to first go from a military background, military education, where the schools were integrated and, you know, teachers really, really were different. But then they came back to a school where that was all black mm. and things were so, so different and challenged and a lack of resources. But what I believe in what our eyes have seen is we have to tell these stories, not just for that generation. We must share our stories so the next generations can benefit from them. Just like you sharing your story, you know, benefits me. I want to know your personal thoughts when it comes to society, right, that you grew up in, that you now live in, that you're now aware of. How do you feel society has, you know, remained the same, have gotten worse, you know, over time from previous generation? What's your perspective, yeah, perspective as a millennial? In a lot of ways, we've advanced, right? I talked about the amazing black and brown people who came before us, who really paved the way, who gave us the right to vote. That was huge, who fought for our right to read and write. You know, they used to say, if you want to hide something from an end, put it in a book. Like, we can read now. We're literate. We have our power. We have the capability to tell our story. And I think we've advanced a lot in that way. The ways in which we haven't advanced, and one thing I try to explain people or explain to people as an attorney, when we think about things like um, Brown versus Board of Education, and we think about integration, and we think about all the ways in which the law has kind of pushed us to advance, it doesn't actually address what's happening in people's hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if the sky is blue, and you know that the sky is blue, but tomorrow the government tells you the sky is green, it does not mean that you're going to wake up tomorrow legally in a lot of ways. I think people still carry a lot of of, of hate in their hearts. Uh, they're scared to see integration happen. We see all the time white people afraid that we're taking their space, right? They're take, we're taking their jobs. We're taking their opportunities. I, I see a lot of fear that still exists. And so I do believe a law is important, but it's going to take a lot more than that if we're really going to create and effectuate change. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And oh my goodness, I, I, I felt your passion in that response. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we're going to transition to the next speaker, but hold tight because what we're going to do is bring you back for a Q&A session, right? And for the audience, this is a perfect time for you to start putting your questions in the chat. Um, sometimes people need to think about their questions, so I want to give you guys early warning. Um, last questions. Um, 
based on your story, and I, I love, you know, the story you tell about, you know, growing up um, in Manassas, Virginia, you know, uh, your parents were at Cornell. Um, do you feel that, you know, you were prepared or vulnerable for the experiences and the challenges that you've experienced? And I'm calling this navigating a raced, classed, and gendered society. Do you feel prepared or vulnerable? What's your perspective, you know, growing up or being born in, you know, Manassas, Virginia and spending time at Cornell? I think a big piece of that is that I've learned how to, what I would say, use uh, as simply as possible, simplicity on the other side of complexity. So I had a law school professor explain to me that when you're first learning something like math, you're learning one plus one equals two, right? Very easy. Then as you advance, it gets a lot harder and eventually gets really complex. Then you might be finding derivatives and Y equals MX plus B and all the, you know, all the hard equations that happen in the middle. But when you get really, really good at math, you know how to get to simplicity on the other side of that, where in order to explain to you what a derivative is, I can I don't have to break it down in hard language. I can just say very simple, like, oh, we're just trying to find like the circumference of the circle. You see this circle and we cut that in half. So you just learn how to explain very calm. And I know I did that wrong because math is not my subject, but you learn how to explain very uh, complex things in a very simple way. I think growing up around a lot of white people, I had to do that because at first base, race was very simple and then the issues became very complex. But in order to even express myself and have relationship with them, I had to learn how to find simplicity on the other side of that, which is why I kind of choose to use short bite-sized narratives and think that there are, are amazing academic books out there that really allow you to deep dive, but so many people are not prepared for that. Simplicity on the other side. You know, I'm just going to, you gave me a bunch of one-liners tonight because audience, be prepared. I will be using these phrases. Simplicity on the other side. One of the things we talk about at Southern Soul is a concept of, you know, to learn and to be educated, you must be sophisticated. You must be highfalutin. You must be of a certain, you know, demeanor. But what we believe here is we have fun. We geek out. We goofy. We corny. But don't get it twisted, Right. It's all kind of, you know, awesomeness happening. But in the way you describe it, it's so real. Simplicity on the other side. You know, when you really understand it, as they say, you can simplify it. It don't have to be, you know, I, my joke is Cornell West type book, because the Lord knows I can't read that man's book. But I read your books very well. I, I will pick up another Cornell West book. But I uh, encourage everyone to purchase this book. It is a blessing. It is a jewel. And thank you for being here with us tonight. And, you know, I'm going to ask you to hold tight because I want to really give the audience to do some Q&A as we transition to Dr. Marsh. I was going to say, I can leave my email, but I actually have to hop on the radio. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna, do, let me put my email. Yeah, I do, do leave your QA. And if you guys have any questions, what I'll do is we'll make sure that you can email her. And that way you'll get a chance to um, ask your questions. Yeah, and my, my website's right there, too. Either one, I'm, I'm responsive to both. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Chris, how are you doing? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me this evening. Awesome. What do you think about that story? There's so many golden nuggets in that story. For, uh, there's just so many. It was a blessing to be able to listen to the story before I came on. 
a couple of things that just kind of resonated with me. One, the whole thing about therapy, you know, mm-hmm. because I am a professor, because I do have students that look up to me, that I mentor, that I have to try to model my life for them. I let them know that I see my therapist every Monday at 10 o'clock because it really is important to take the stigma out of mental health. And I remember one student said to me, like, Dr. Marsh, you have that, you have it going on. What you doing seeing a therapist? I was like, listen, part of the reason why you think I got it going on is because if I'm going to buy that overpriced organic food, if I'm going to work out five times a week, trust and believe I'm going to take care of my mental health. And I see my therapist every week and we just don't talk enough about therapy. And to the young woman's point in the black church, you're just supposed to pray. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I was like, I'm going to pray, but I'm also going to find me a Christian therapist. We can pray together, but we can talk through some of these concerns and issues and, and situations that I want to talk through with. So that was one thing that really resonated with me. The other thing that really resonated with me, and I so appreciate the conversation. I mean, she was speaking directly to the book that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So for those that, that do not know, I was like, I'm writing a book looking at people that are single and living alone in the black middle class. I'm arguing that there's a demographic shift away from married couples to young black professionals who aren't married and don't have any children. And what are some of the implications in that? And so one of the things I was just working on the book this morning, and one of the things that I was saying in the book, you have to write an abstract, like what is this book talking about? Mm-hmm. And I talked about all this theoretical stuff and blah, 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 blah. But I tried to be as parsimonious as I can. And I try to be stingy with my words and what I say as an academic, because I'm not the Cornell West kind of academic. Mm-hmm. And it's coming all shapes, sizes, and colors. And I like to be parsimonious, keep it simple, or, or kiss, keep it simple, stupid. I don't like to use all those big 15-letter words. But one of the things I hope that people will um, learn or at least critically think about after they read my book. People often ask single people, why aren't you married? I hope after reading my book, people are just as likely to ask people, why are you married? Because what happens is that if you ask somebody, why aren't they married? You're almost superimposing a deficit model. You got all of the accoutrements of life and middle-classness, but you're not married. So why aren't you married? I want people to kind of think about what the utility of marriage is. I'm not, I, I, it's so funny. People think I'm I'm anti-marriage. I am not. But what does marriage serve you? What's the purpose? What's the utility of marriage? So I want people to read my book. I want everybody to read my book. But one of the things I want them to say after they read the book is like, I'm just as likely to ask somebody, why are you married? And why versus why aren't you married? And I'm really trying to take this stigma out of singlehood. Because we think that if you're single, you're there's a deficit. And I really am trying to take the stigma out of that. And I appreciate the conversation because it definitely resonated with all that I'm trying to do in my book. Had the book been out when she was trying to figure out that she had to be married at 30, she'd be like, wait a minute, Dr. Marsh is saying there's a whole group of, I'm calling this group the Love Jones cohort. There's a whole group of young Black professionals who are not married and are living very fulfilled lives. They're doing other things. The book also tries to extend the conversation besides saying like, what else do we know about singles beside their marital status and their dating patterns? Mm-hmm. I'm so tired of that conversation. Like, why aren't Black women getting married? It's an important conversation to a lot of people. And I'm not taking anything away from the conversation. But again, it leaves Black women in particular in a deficit position. Mm-hmm. It's like, what else can we say about Black women or people that are singles? Like, how do they decide when to buy homes? How do they decide who they're going to bequeath their wealth to? How do they decide where they're going to live? They don't have a partner. They don't have children. Do they decide to live in urban areas, city areas, they live in suburban areas? I'm really trying to add more texture to people that are single and living alone in the Black middle class. And then lastly, 
the other thing that resonated with, <laughs> and I'll take a breath. After Inspiration, that. keep going. The other thing that really resonated with me too is that I think what happened as a sociologist, one of the things that we have to think about is like, it's kind of hard thinking about race and talk about race and decide when we want to talk to our children about race. But whether you grew up in a predominantly black space or a predominantly white space, you're probably going to have a racialized moment at some point in America. And you have to figure out what you're going to do with that racialized moment. Is that going to, is that going to derail you or is it going to put you like on a new path and think about race in a slightly different way? A lot of people want to shield their children and stuff from race and don't want to talk about race. But I would argue that that's not maybe the healthiest way. You have to find a way to um, to balance the conversation because there will be a racialized moment. And to the question that you asked about um, how has I think you said something about how has America changed as a millennial? How you see mm -hmm. the change? And I think that there has been some progress. And I appreciate of successful black middle-class folks that we have in America and so on and so forth. There is this, this huge racial wealth disparity that exists and hope we get a chance to talk about some of that today. But I think one of the biggest things that we see it's happening in America in particular is that racism used to be overt. And what I mean by that is like it was whites only, blacks only. You knew where you could go and where you couldn't mm -hmm. go. Racism now is covert, the, the opposite, is covert. So what happens now is that you have these like little racial microaggressions and you almost kind of want to say, was that, a, was that a race issue? And it's, it makes you stop and pause and it puts the onus back on you. It's like, no, I'm not taking that. It's like, yeah, that was a race issue. We're going to call that all the way out. But mm -hmm. it's more, it's way more subtle now because you can't name it. You can't, you didn't call me the N word, but you say, oh, you're articulate. Mm. Mm -hmm. I swim, you know, black people aren't supposed to swim. I love to swim. I'm actually, I'm actually an excellent swimmer. I don't have the body type that you would think a swimmer would have, but I have a, um, I'm a wonderful swimmer. So much, for, so much so, I have an interesting name that someone had gave me because I swim so well. So I moved to Maryland and I like to swim and I went to a pool that I had never been to before. And I, I usually start this out with my race course every day. This Every time I teach a race course, I start out with this story. So I have all the overpriced, expensive swimwear. I've got this overpriced swimsuit that costs like $100. I got the head, I got the, the um, uh, swim cap, the goggles, mm -hmm. everything. I'm going to this gym. I'm getting ready to get into the pool. So this young white girl walks up to me. So she says, do you know how to swim? She's, oh. a, she's a lifeguard. <laughs> So hmm. I was like, hmm. okay. So I was like, I, I, I kind of act like I didn't hear it first. She repeats, like, excuse me, do you have a swim? And I was like, yeah, I think I can do okay. So I took off, you know, ego kicked in, right? You can talk about that competitive edge at the beginning. Oh. I swam for 60 minutes straight. I did my oh. flip turns and all that. I swam for 60 minutes straight. I lost my lungs at about 38 minutes, but I was going to keep going. I was going to keep mm -hmm. going all the mm -hmm. way until the end. So I got out after about 60 minutes, you know, shook my hair off. I was like, yeah, I think I do okay. Oh, you Here's, the point. Idea, Here's the point. I start that story out in every race course that I teach. I'm like, was that a racial incident? And it's funny how people's lenses of how they think about the social world vary. Because you have some people like, oh, you were just new. And I was like, whether I was new or not, her job was to be the lifeguard. So she didn't have to come up to me and ask me if I was a new white girl, blonde hair and blue eyes, would she ask the same story? So what happens with the racism now is we can't always name it and claim it because you didn't call me explicitly call me the N word. And so it's harder for us to kind of tease it out and think through it. And it can be it can be traumatizing for black folks having always think about that so i think i'll stop now awesome awesome what inspiration let me introduce you guys to dr chris marsh she received her phd from the university of southern california in 2005 she was a postdoctoral scholar at 
the Carolina Population Center at the University of North Carolina, Go Hills. She, um, before joining the faculty um, of the University of Maryland, where she has been tenured since 2014, currently Professor Mars is writing a book, as she stated, The Love Jones Cohort, A New Face of the Black Middle Class. Thank you for being here today and really, really sharing some time with us. You know, I've been excited to talk about this topic of reparations, of identity, about policing. And I thought I was going to have to find 10 different people. But I found one person who could talk about all of this, right? So I am excited to have a person. So we're going to cover a lot of topics, but I'm just going to have to call this part one because we're going to cover the topic and we're going to do some Q&A. But, you know, before we get into the question, just let us little know about your compass, about where you grew up, about your origin story. Tell us about you, right? And, and, and some about your hobbies. you got other hobbies, too. Tell us about who is Dr. Chris Marsh. So, you know, I where did you come from? <laughs> so I appreciate the story that was told, and my story is going to dovetail with the story that was told earlier, because I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, in the San Fernando Valley. It was predominantly white. My parents did relatively well for themselves. So they thought white was right and sent us to the whitest schools and, you know, sent us to schools that was only my sister and I and the neighbors down the street that were in the classes with other white students, which was a good thing because we always got to go to the field trips. We always got to be in the very front of the plays. We always got to like do the special assignments at school because they wanted that black face um, uh, in the schools. So I went to predominantly white schools, thought that I was white, didn't, didn't realize that I was black until I got to college. That's the best thing that ever happened to me because I, I grew up around white folks all this time. Got to college. What's interesting about the story that was told earlier, I remember I was in high school and I was going to college. My parents said I was going to college. It was a foregone conclusion. I was going, they were going to pay. So if they picked the major, I got to pick the university or they got to pick the university and I got to pick the major because they had some skin in the game. So they were going to have something to say. So I was trying to decide what schools I want to go to. And my college advisor told me, white woman, older white woman, I think she, if she's still alive, I'm going back to my high school. She told me, you're social. So you should probably just become a hairdresser and not go to college. Mm. I was like, uh, OK, so got to college and I majored in business. My parents made me major in business. I realized I didn't like business. I absolutely did not like business. And so I was like, I got to figure out how to hurry up and get up out this university because um, my parents going to be like, uh, how long are you going to be up in here trying to get your undergraduate degree? I remember taking a sociology class. There was a professor there named Philip Gay who was passed on. Philip Gay said to me, he's like, Chris, you have a sociological imagination. You should get a PhD. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly planes. And so I was like, what's a PhD? How do you spell that? I don't even know what that is. My parent, I come from a line of entrepreneurs. I was going to own a business. and I was going to be an airline pilot. He's like, you should get a PhD. And I appreciate Philip Gay because if Philip Gay said, you know what? You should be a stripper because you got a stripper's body. I might be in a totally different space and place that I am now. We don't understand how influential teachers really, really are. They can verbalize it. And there's also nonverbal cues that we can, that students will uh, internalize by teachers. So teachers can pick, pick your teachers and your children's teachers wisely. So I decided to get a PhD in sociology. And I'm so excited because I always try to pay it forward with what Philip Gay invested in me. And I try to find those students that are kind of like struggling, like, hey, you got this, you can do this. And I have like so many success stories and my students have gone on to get PhDs. I had an undergraduate who came 
became a graduate student who now uh, is an assistant professor starting at Lehigh in the fall. So it has been an interesting ride, but I appreciate the fact that I woke up and realized that I was black and I'm not giving my black back. And I love being a black woman. It is not easy in America, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I absolutely appreciate the space and place that I'm in as a black woman. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it's always so inspirational. I mean, you know, because as you know, when we don't share those stories, we just keep starting over, over and over and over again. I love the way you describe those racialized moments. Racialized moments, you know, I was sitting in the session recently and I was frustrated because in this session, people were still going through the debate of was it real, was it not real? I'm like, come on, y'all. We need some research. Right. We need a simple, you know, in business school, you get a, a simple two by two matrix. Okay, was it overt racism? Was it indirect racism? You know, was it affected you? You know, come on, we need to we need to stop debating if it's real or not, right? I right. mean, maybe traveling to Mars, right? Hey, maybe we can live on Mars. I don't know, right? We can still debate that, but let's stop debating racialized moments because they're real, and we need to get to the point of figuring out what do we do about it. And we're going to step into some of that. Tell us about your your work and what you do. Your research methods, race. This is right here. You do research methods race relations, and racial residential segregation. OMG, what does that mean? What okay, wait, so I want to go back to one of the points that you made, if I can, yes. though. Um, so here, I appreciate that. It's like, you know, we spend so much time having a conversation, debating on whether or not that was a racialized moment or not. It was, and uh, <laughs> if you didn't think it was, trust, it's going to happen again. But more importantly than that, getting back to this whole notion about mental health and self-care, whatever response you give, is the right response at the time. Two things. When, when someone does something like a racial microaggression against you, I was like, you sitting up at night, think about it. that person has gone on and they think they're not even thinking about you, but you sitting up thinking about that. Let it go. I guarantee you somebody else is going to do something a racist, racist microaggression against you. You have a chance to address them then. And if you decide you don't want to say anything, fine. If you decide you want to cuss them out from amazing grace to how sweet it is, don't get arrested. That's fine too. But be 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 okay with whatever your response is. Because if you go home and start second guessing yourself, well, I should have said this, and then I should have said this, and then I should have snatched them, then you know they won because you're taking that home with you. So as black professionals, we're going to be in spaces where there's always going to be something. Whatever our response is at that time, I would argue is the best response. And if it's no response, that is the best response at that time. So by way of like classes that I uh, I teach and then my hobbies, because you asked about my hobbies. So most of my, I'm a demographer and a sociologist. So most of my work up until a few years ago was all quantitative. So I taught research method, methods and I teach students how to do research. I also have conversations and classes around residential segregation. I'm really fascinated with why people live where they live and what are the consequences of living where you live. I've also um, taught race courses. I've taught undergraduate and graduate race courses. Undergraduate, I taught race relations. Graduate, I taught critical race theory, which is so funny. I've been teaching it for years, but now it's the hot, sexy topic that people really wanna talk about, but I've been teaching it for years. I also just taught a class on intersectionality where it talks about matrix of domination or these uh, um, competing oppressive identities that we have, race, mm -hmm. gender, and class, and how all of those work together to help people understand kind of their identity and oppression that they exist. So I really appreciated the intersectionality class. I just 
taught a class last semester on the boondocks. I'm not sure if anybody's aware oh. of the boondocks. The boondocks started at the University of Maryland. The creator, Aaron Magruder, went to the University of Maryland. The boondocks started as a comic strip in our local newspaper. Um, and then it went to TV and it was syndicated. And then, you know, I think they had three seasons and then they took a, they did a reboot and came back with like season four. They, they toyed with the idea of coming back with another season 2022, but something happened and it didn't actually come through, but I do hope that it comes through at some point. And the reason why I, I wanted to teach a class on the boondocks was for two reasons. One, I'm trying to get undergraduate students to think about sociology in more mm -hmm. concrete and innovative kind of ways. Two, I just turned 49 last week and I'm the last year in my 40s. And people say when you get into your 50s, you don't care about a whole lot or you give zero F-U-C-Ks. So I'm 49 and I just don't care. I'm going to teach the class that I want to teach. I'm going to teach a class that I think is exciting and interesting. And I don't care what nobody says, like, oh, that's not very theoretical or that's not very sociological. No. It is. I'm bringing students. I'm meeting students where they are. So I give yes. zero I give zero Fs about what somebody else thinks. And that's so refreshing yes. to get to that point. And I appreciate my therapist on Monday and my mental health Mondays where I, I mark out my day to do everything that I want to do and nothing that I have to do. And one of the things that I want to do leads into the hobby that I actually have. About three years ago, actually about 20 something years ago, I bought some golf clubs from Target for $99. I took three golf lessons and I played twice. I took a 20 year hiatus and I came back to the sport in 2019. I never thought that I would like golf. And I don't know that I necessarily like the sport all that much um, as a sport, but I am intellectually intrigued with the sport because what I appreciate about golf, like some of these ideas like intersectionality, gendered racism, racism, may be abstract ideas to some people. But what I'm going to do is I'm in the process of writing a book, doing an ethnography, spending time in the culture to understand the culture and then describe the culture to talk about how race, class and racism, classism and sexism exist in the golf course. Ooh, and so I'm I taking abstract ideas and overlaying them in a very concrete kind oh, of way. And I'm using golf as a vehicle to talk through some of those nuances. And like I said, your girl don't care, right? So the University of Maryland will be like, we're Chris Martin, we're Dr. Marshall. Like, oh, I'm on the golf course collecting data. Because if I'm going to do this mm -hmm. thing in academia, because academia, we know, has anti-Black sentiments that run through it. It was not made for me. It doesn't want to see me. And it surely does not want to support me. So since I know anti-Blackness runs through academia, I'm going to do me. And I'm going to write me a book on the golf course. So when they're looking for me, I'm like, Dr. Marshall, on a golf course somewhere. Awesome. You actually went into the next segment because you're, you're so smoothly transitioning through this. You're so easy to interview. You use that word anti-Blackness. I love that word. I don't know why. I just love it. It's just I, I love that word. Anti-Blackness. People talk about racism, they talk about this, they talk about this, but, but the word anti-blackness, I love it. You often use this word as a trend in organizational behavior. What does it mean? Break right. this down. What does anti-blackness mean? What are you seeing? Describe to us some nuances of anti-blackness that are happening and what we should be on the lookout for. Right. So anti-Blackness pretty much happens in any social institution in America. Why? Because we know race is the linchpin that holds America together. And race is the linchpin. Race is what built um, America. So when you're talking about anti-Blackness, you're talking about social organizations and institutions that want to stay as far away from anything that represents or even looks anything like 
blackness, anything that looks like black culture, anything that that promotes blackness, they would completely and totally want to stay away from. And all social institutions, not just academia, but all social institutions have this kind of reckoning they have to deal with right now where they are anti-Black. And because they are anti-Black, we need to call them out and we need to think about ways in which we can be less anti-Black. Funny story. I have a graduate student and I like to give attribution where attribution is due. Her name is... Um, Ashley Hickson. I was on her dissertation defense a couple of years ago, a couple of months ago. And she was talking about um, Black women in higher education. And she made a really compelling argument, and I've used it ever since. She was saying that we have historically Black colleges and universities, and we often say predominantly white colleges and universities. So when you say predominantly white, that means that majority, 50% or more, um, are white. She's arguing and she's basing it herself and her basing her argument in some of the literature. And I can give you the citations for that. But she's arguing that we should be calling these historically white institutions and colleges, not predominantly white, because they're historically steeped in anti-blackness and white supremacy ideology, white terror, white violence and oppression. So we shouldn't be calling them predominantly, but we should be calling them historically white because that's exactly what there are. The, the demography, the pedagogies, the curriculum, the actual infrastructures of education are steeped in white supremacy. And being steeped in white supremacy is the antithesis to blackness. Sorry, or the antithesis to anti-blackness, however you say that. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, another thing you said on that topic is that another class you teach is research methods. And I haven't thought about it, but when I do think about it, it's just so, so straightforward. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if research methods can be anti-Black. Is that possible for a research oh, method to be anti-Black? Absolutely. Because you have this like, a, you have this very, um, what's the word I want to use? You have this very formalized way in which you have to do your research. You have to have like, depending on if it's inductive or deductive, but you have a theoretical framework and then you develop research questions and then you have hypotheses and then you test your hypotheses and then you either accept or reject your hypotheses or accept or reject the null hypothesis. Then you talk about your conclusions and your, find, your findings and your conclusions. Okay. Black folks don't do it quite like that. We do oral history. You go up to talk to us. You go to sit with us a little bit. You go to pull some coffee and some cornbread, and we're going to have a conversation like that. But to say that research has to be done a certain kind of way, it's steeped in whiteness. It's steeped in whiteness. Oh. And it doesn't, it doesn't fully, it doesn't, it doesn't allow us to look at the full robustness of black culture, how we use oral history as a way to understand things, as a way to convey information from one generation to the next. I'm a demographer, so I understand statistical models and all that kind of stuff, standard deviations and all that kind of stuff, right? As a discipline, sociology only wanted to be quantitative, where we only did that's kind of like pure research, the research I just spoke about. So mm -hmm. when you're only quantitative, you have disenfranchised an entire group of researchers that are qualitative, being if you want to do narratives, and you also disenfranchise an entire group of um, uh, participants and knowledge base that we lose, absolutely lose because you're doing that pure kind of science. So what I appreciate about me and my academic career right now is that I started out quantitative and I still know how to do that stuff, but I've kind of shifted and pivoted and I'm doing more qualitative work. So the book on the Love Jones cohort is actually quanti qualitative. I interviewed people because I wanted to put metaphorical meat on the numerical bones that I produced over the years. And I appreciate the fact that my that I'm doing that. Colleagues are kind of like, I don't care. Like I said, I don't care. I'm gonna do it my way. And my book in a lot of ways is a is based is a politics of citation. What I mean by that is that 
What we know in the literature is that Black women, Black women scholars are the least cited of all scholars. Hmm. We're just not cited as much as anybody else. You know, we, we don't, they don't think that we can produce knowledge. We're knowledge producers. So we're least cited. So one of the things that I did, I, my book is published with Cambridge University Press, which is the oldest and most prestigious press in the company. I don't say that to brag because I am blessed and highly favored. But one of those reasons why it took me so long to write the book is because I was going to write it my way. If Cambridge wasn't going to produce it, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to publish it because they didn't like the way it was written, but I was going to be happy with the way in which I wrote it. So what I did was I'm talking about black folks and the black middle class. Why am I going to cite a whole bunch of white scholars that are talking mm -hmm. about the black middle class? I said, mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to find me some black folks that are talking about this. Now on Google search, I had to go to page seven. You know, I got to keep clicking. I had to go to page seven before I got to the black scholars because the white scholars have made their career pimping out black America. Yes. And so I was like, I'm getting ready to do this. I was like, it is a politics of citation in my book. Now, luckily, Cambridge saw what I was trying to do and they said, okay, and they were going to produce it anyway. But I said, if they don't take it, I will take it to another publisher that I know will value that it is a politics of citation project and they will publish it. So that was really, really important to me as, as a scholar and as well as like a more advanced scholar. So I really wanted to highlight the younger female, black female scholars that were coming before me too. It's almost paying homage to them in a lot of ways. So I love it. I love it. You actually just gave me prep for an interview I have coming up, you know, and this young lady, she was interviewing. Um, she's a professor, she's a researcher, and she's interviewing boomers for their oral stories. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead of getting to the research, she decided to write about something different, which is I don't know what's going on, but it's hard to get these stories. And I don't know, but I'm going to have to check it out. If maybe mm -hmm. she was coming with that, um, let's say that um, uh, anti-Black research method, and on Black folk be like, hey, are you going to listen to my story or are you not, right? But you ain't going to be asking me about no hypothesis. Keep going. Wait, was she was she Black? <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, a... I, I'm getting excited because I... I, I I always wondered because I know it's the possibility, but the way you broke it down, I'm going to slow down because I'm geeking out. I need to get to, to the audience so they can ask questions. We got a couple more topics, and I've already seen, you know, Andre ask for a part two because he already know. We got two other topics we're going to talk about. For the audience, be ready with your questions, you know. Um, type them in the chat because um, we're going to have some discussion. And Dr. Chris Marsh, thank you for being you. It's my um, pleasure. Two things we're going to talk about. You also work with improving police community relations and your mentor wrote a key book on reparations. And then, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, the last question, which you kind of alluded to, is how has society changed? Have it improved, gotten worse? But let's talk about your police community relations. Policing. Tell us what's going on with policing. You actually work in a way that you actually train police officers to understand bias in their decision making. What's going on in that world? Because that's a whole can of worms by itself. Let us know what's going on with policing. <laughs> yes. So that is an interesting part of, of being an academic. So they call on you to like do different things. So I got the call, I think, 2015 to do some work and some training with um, my local police department. I probably won't I won't call them by name, but a local police department. So um, policing is hard. Working with police is challenging. I'm a short, black, thick, black woman who with, with, with my natural hair. So they don't know what, and I'm coming in there trying to get them to think about themselves. It is not always an easy conversation. 
And at the end of the day, I have to decide whether or not I want to, I wanted to continue policing. And I decided that I don't want to do it. I've done it for a a little bit over, I think six years. And um, it's been interesting, but I just don't want to do it anymore because of getting back to the whole notion about like self-care and um, my mental health Mondays, it's challenging because it's a social institution that, uh, even though, even if you don't have racist police officers, I'm not saying there aren't racist police officers, but even if you don't have racist officers, if the infrastructure and the policies and procedures are racist, then the whole entire institution needs to reevaluate it, reevaluate itself. You don't, because you know, the, the people want to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but you're playing out racist policies and practices. And it's hard to have that structural conversation with a lot of people. They don't want to have the structural conversation. So I get a lot of pushback. Now, I've been with the officers for a couple of years. So I'm like, I leave nothing on the table. I don't mince words. I tell you exactly how I feel, exactly what I'm thinking. And it's hard. But my argument is that policing is challenging and it can't just be training. You have to do some institutional changes. There's two things I think would be really, really great because I've done some work with policing for for a couple of years. One, I have to carry liability insurance to train officers. It's God awful expensive and I have to have over a million dollars of liability insurance. So they can't come and sue me like, Dr. Marsh told me to do this, this, and this, and I did it and I got shot, so they're gonna sue me. So I'm arguing that if we think about policing and think about some institutional changes, why don't they carry liability insurance as well? And if you can't get insured, that should be telling. Surgeons call, carry, carry liability insurance. They have the ability to, to take a life. Police officers have the ability to take a life. Why don't we have, why don't they have liability insurance? Their own liability insurance that they have to garner. I got it. Second part, I think that every police officer and everybody else. Because what I like about policing is that policing allows us to think about other social institutions. Sometimes we don't want to look at our own institution, but we're going we to indict police officers. Uh-uh, I'm indicting everybody. And what I constantly say, police officers kill Black bodies, professors kill Black spirits. We are no better than police officers. The thing is, I can be killing and terrorizing Black students, but I'm never going to make the five o'clock news. So every social institution, especially where there's a hierarchy in power, there's some people that are lower levels, some people in the higher powers, we have to think about how we are treating our Black black colleagues, students, um, community members, so on and so forth. So police officers kill Black bodies, professors kill Black students. So I would argue that in any case where you have a hierarchy in power, there should be a report card. I should be able to go, any student should be able to go to University of Maryland and see Dr. Marsh's report card on race, class, gender, sexual orientation, whether or not I'm, I'm racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Xenophobic is a hatred of immigrants. All of that should be somewhere where people can go. If I am a, in public service, if I am providing customer service because I train police officers and I call it customer service, I'm in the process of moving from police officers to training shock trauma surgeons about the biases that they have. I was like, you know, I must be a glutton for punishment. I'm like, okay, move from one institution to the next. Shock trauma surgeons should have a report card. Professors should have, especially when you're in power, a report card. There should be national report cards for all this, not just police officers. They kill black bodies, and I'm not trying to undermine that, but we're doing a whole bunch of damage. But our damage is, is, is long sustaining because that's 30, 40, 50 years of them having to go to therapy because professors tell students, you don't want to study race. It's going to devalue you as a scholar. You have to talk. You have to know how to talk professional in class. In other words, I got to try to talk like a white folk. I can't challenge you on some of the stuff you say. 
So we need to start thinking about having a national report card. Police officers need to carry liability um, insurance. And anybody that's a professional, I think, should carry liability insurance. And I'm and I'm done with policing. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I'm absolutely done with policing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you for giving us the introduction because it definitely gives me a lot to think about, right? And I totally agree with you on police officers may kill black bodies, but let's not just beat them up. There's a lot of institutions, social institutions that are doing a lot of different damage in that report card and that liability insurance is so, so key yeah. to understand this stuff is real. Now, the favorite topic. You know, I, I got to say black churches, you know, my, my, you know. Yes, yes. You, you know, I, given I the, thought. Given, of, the, given the ghost guests that we had before us, I think black churches need to be up in there, too. But OK. All right, I you know, it. I thought about a past report card, too. So I'm glad, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my yes. goodness. So yes. the next topic is hot. And I know that many people are thinking about reparations, right? Um, we had a show um, a few months ago on Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, the history of black cities. And one of the persons submitted feedback after the show. I send feedback out there for the show. So be looking for an email so you can provide feedback on this show. But they were like, you got to cover reparations. Mm -hmm. and, and they were proud. They said, hey, in California, we doing it big. We out here living our best life. We doing reparations. Y'all need to get like me. She didn't say that, but that's what I heard, right? When I talked to you about reparations, you were like, hmm, I don't think you were impressed with the California reparations. For us new on the topic, right? For us who hadn't heard Tanase Coates talk for two hours to the Senate about reparations, break down what we should be understanding about reparations and how what California is doing may not be the goal. Share with us. Okay, so Greenbelt, Maryland is doing a some they just approved some kind of similar measure. So in the spirit of complete and total transparency, I did a postdoc scholarship at uh, University of Carol North Carolina, Chapel Hill in the Carolina Population Center. And my preceptor or my mentor was a man named, an economist named William Sandy Darity. And he just wrote a book called From Here to Equality, where he really talks about reparations. So he's been doing this for over 20 something years, probably more like 30 something years. So I'm drawing from, I know the, the intimacy of the book and the, the kind of concept and the idea. Here's the thing. And I was just looking at my book just earlier today, and I was talking about the uh, racial wealth disparity that exists. For every dollar of wealth held by a white person, a black person holds 10 cents of wealth relative to that dollar. Said differently, for every 10 cents that a black person has in wealth, a white person has a dollar in wealth. Now, is that because of conspicuous consumption? People buying, black folks buying stuff that they can't afford, buying these big houses, these big cars, these big rims? Or could that be more systemic? Yes, it is way more systemic. We know that black folks couldn't, at some point, they couldn't even buy property because they were property. That was a federal law. So when we think about reparations, we have to think about reparations at the federal level. I appreciate all of these small states and all these small cities that are doing some type of reparation. That's good. But to really be impactful, the federal government owes American Blacks or Black Americans reparations. It should not be at the individual level. It should be a federal law. And to my point, we were just talking about Tulsa. You know, Tulsa wasn't the only city. You know, they had about like 90 other cities where that happened, where you had helicopters that were bombing places. Where do you think people got the bombs and helicopters for? The federal government is indicted in this entire thing, and the federal government needs to pay. And if you want to read the book, if you don't want to read the whole book, because it gives you a nice big history about how every single company on Wall Street was built by either sugar 
or buy cotton. And sugars, sugar plantations were really, really hard. The lifespan was about six or seven years. They said sugar was really, really hard for people to deal with. Every, every company, every company on Wall Street built by, built by slaves. At the end of the day, all these companies, I don't care what you, however you want to do it, but the federal government needs to pay these reparations. And I want to say my 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 mentor said it's about $13 trillion that we should be paid. And he has a formula for actually how you do it. He would put a commission together. You would have had, this is where it gets interesting. And please don't quote me on the on the on the details, get the get the the, the larger story. You had to claim like black on the census for the last like three decades. I think it is something like that. Don't quote me on that. The issue is if you had you had to, again, claim black. The issue is if you were able to pass for white or if you were biracial, my colleague is saying that you don't necessarily get your reparations because your reparations were the fact that you were able to pass in America and be accepted. Mm -hmm. So there were your reparations. He came to my class and talked to my students. My students wow. looked into him. But yeah, it's like, okay, you're that, because you were able to pass, there go your reparations. But America wow. absolutely owes reparations. There is a huge wealth disparity that exists and it's not individual. If we think black folks just don't want to save for to that point, my same colleague and mentor did a study and he compared comparable middle-class households, black and white, and found, controlling for all other measures, found that blacks actually save a little bit more than do whites. So that whole argument that like blacks just don't know how to save, but it's just financial illiteracy. No, nothing from nothing is nothing. You gave us nothing and we have nothing. Give me some money. Let me see if I know what, I know what to do with it. So I, I, I don't want to make the individual argument. We're so quick to say, well, they just don't know how to save. It's not about that. They just don't have the financial literacy. Give me the money and let's see if I can be literate with my money. <laughs> and so one of the things he's arguing, too, is that it's not necessarily cash, but it's capital so that we can like open up our own businesses and stuff like that. Because, I mean, I must be real clear. Some of us, gonna, some of us, you know, we're going we gonna to go get ourselves an Escalade. I mean, just some of us are. You know? yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I might be one of them. I'm gonna start a little business or something like that too. So people are saying like, we just don't want to give money. I'm like, okay, well, you give you access to capital so that we can start our own institutions. We can continue to build our own institutions so that we can be self-sufficient so that we don't have to look to white, white America. So it has to be at the federal level, which by the way, kind of excited about this topic, which by the way, is really interesting. I have family members that died of COVID, so I'm not indicting COVID in any way, shape, fashion or form. But Stroke of a pen, they were able to move trillions of dollars from one side of the ledger to the next for COVID. So don't tell me it can't be done. COVID has shown us it can be done. You just move it from yeah. one side of the ledger to That's the next. Counting. $13 trillion. And what he did was he said, in one example, he talked by Sandy Darity, who wrote the book, From Here to Equality. He talked about, okay, let's just take Brown University, which we know was built, uh, Ivy League, built by slaves. He said, if we say that there were, I'm giving an example. If we say that there were 1,200 slaves that built Brown. They worked Monday through Friday, five days a week from nine to five, plus inflation, how much it would actually cost. So he did, he's an economist. So he he did econometrics, all these really great measures to figure out like where we are. And I want to say somewhere between 11 and $13 trillion that Amer Black Americans are owned. owed. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with you us this perspective and you know, I'm speechless. I'm going to stop. I'm going to pause because I know the audience has questions. Uh, I see Andre has put a question in there. Tamika has dropped the book in the audience. Katie, let's start out with you. I know um, 
Katie likes to ask the first questions. But in the meantime, Tamika, if you can help us kind of pull some questions out of the chat. I know um, I saw one question from Andre, but I can't keep up with other questions. So Tamika, if you can help us grab some questions from the chat. Katie, you go first. What question do you have for our speaker? I'm actually going to go ahead and speak out Andre's question. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Um, just wonderful, wonderful words of wisdom and much appreciated by everyone in our audience, as you can see by the chat. Um, Andre's question was, what are the big problems in America that are under-researched? Um, what are your thoughts on that? That's a really That's a big broad. one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Andre, come on. I'm like, I can't, I can't pull an answer out of my hat. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know, Andre. There's a there's a lot of great topics that I think can and should be studied, but I can't give you like the top three that need to be studied. But I do think to your point though, Andre, if we are going to study um any kind of research topic. I'm in the space and the place and I've evolved as a scholar and I also reserve the right to change my mind. So if I come back in 10 years and my mind is different, I reserve that right. But as a scholar now, if you're not intimately connected to whatever you're studying, you need to have, you need to take some time to articulate, we call it a positionality statement. Explain how you as a straight white man are gonna come into a transgendered black community and write a whole write a whole book that becomes a bestseller book. You need to stop and pause and explain to me what gives you the right and what kind of pedigree and experience do you have to thoughtfully talk about a certain group population. So there's a ton of topics out there, but it really is important to look at the researcher and understand where the researcher comes from and how that shapes the way in which they have conversations around some of the research that they actually engage in. So Andre, that's the best answer that I have, but I don't I don't I can't say which topics need to be studied. Yeah, I, I love that topic. I really do love it. Um, one of my favorite topics I feel is under-researched is, um, and, and I'm actually getting ready to produce a show on it, but you know, I was in this conversation, I was talking earlier, Dr. Chris, of every time we start talking about racism, we start from scratch, right? Even black people be looking like, you like, are you sure it was racism, right? And I'm sitting in this session and they're talking about academic and they're all academics and they're experiencing racism at work. And I share my story from corporate and they're kind of looking at me like, mm, yeah, okay, you know, we, we're, we're in academic. Our racism must be much very different from yours. I'm like, come on, y'all. Why must we start from scratch every single conversation? So there's a book coming out from the winners group and they're talking about how to essentially navigate. I'm going to read this. Um, equity at work. Essentially, how do you navigate in a successful way? racism and equity at work when you're dealing with racism and bias, right? I call it a cookbook, right? It don't need to be that complicated. We need to understand, hey, this is work. Is it overt? Is it indirect? You know, is it aggressive? Is it not, right? Like you said, is it covert? But I think that's a topic that I would love to see a lot of research on. But, you know, I digress. That's my favorite topic. Katie, what else you got for us? Dr. Chris, I've got a question for you, though. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. what, what gives you hope about this youngest generation and how vocal so many of them are in terms of, you know, what, what do you think that they're going to do in terms of addressing a lot of these issues that we're talking about today? Um, you know, we're talking about, you You mentioned I'm indicting everyone, which is, I'm taking that quote, because that, that is how I feel daily, right? Is yes. that, ain't nobody Anybody can get it. it. 
Yeah, everybody's yeah. going to get it from me. Right. What, what do you think about with this younger generation and how bold they are? Let me tell you, let me tell you, this younger generation keeps me empowered. They keep me grounded and they keep me going. I appreciate this younger generation. Now, we have this whole notion about respectability politics where Black people will police other Black people and tell them how they're mm. supposed to act and how they're supposed to be. Mm. There's a whole bunch of older Black folks like, why that Black Lives Matter got to go, go up there on stage for Hillary Clinton? I was like, listen, y'all done march all kind of stuff. Stuff and that don't work. If you got to get up there on that stage and take the mic from Hillary Clinton, then so be it. But what happens is that you almost have this di- just generational divide where the older folks like, let's be very respectful. Let's just do it in a very tactful kind of way. Young folks are like, tack is gone. I'm done with tack. And I love it. And they keep me young. And I'm like, yeah. I, I appreciate them. I appreciate them. But we have to be really careful because a lot of times the older folks will be looking will be looking down at those younger folks like they are just so belligerent. They are just so ignorant. And the generation before us said the same thing about us. They're doing things a little bit differently. And I appreciate the fact that they're doing things differently. I have one student whose name I will not call, but. They have the, the university has not been kind to her. They tell they let her know almost every day, every kind of way she's not welcome. This wasn't made for her. This wasn't for her because she's going to. She has no problems debating anybody. It can be an endowed chair. She has no problems going toe to toe. She's gonna stand her ground every single time. And so she's like, you know, this isn't a place that just welcomes black culture. In fact, it, anti-black sentiments run through it. So they try to push everything away. It looks like black culture is. So she wore her head on to class one day. I was like, okay, I would never do that. But the fact that she wore her head on, I was like, you know what? You do you. You absolutely do you. Now I said, let's talk about the cut. Our mentor, I was like, let's talk about the consequences. There's going to be some consequences. I was like, but they already don't want you here in the first place. So I'm like, do, absolutely do you. So the younger generation keeps me young. It keeps me edgy. It keeps me taking, I take more chances because, because they really do speak to me. And I believe you can get inspiration from a three-year-old to a 103-year-old and everything in between. I never tell my students that I'm proud of them because that almost puts it on a hierarchy. Parents typically tell their children they're proud of them, but children don't typically tell their parents that they're proud of them. But I tell my students that they inspire me because they truly are my inspiration. And every single day I'm like, okay, we got to go. I was like, listen, I'm not going to be on the front line marching with you and getting up on the stage. <laughs> but be, thank God you got somebody in your in your arsenal that got a Black American Express or got a Platinum American Express. I can get you out of jail if I need to. So call me if you get in jail. I got you. But I'm just not going to be out there doing it the way in which you do it. But I support them. But we have to be real careful because if we're not careful, we'll just be like, mm, they don't they do not do it the right kind of way. There isn't a right kind of way at this point. And there's people who are just tired. That's right. You're just tired. And I appreciate the George Floyd moment. Sorry that we lost him. But now, I mean, a lot of the stuff is perfunctory and performative, but at least you have a Nike talking about structural racism on their website. What have they done since that? Okay. At least you got Ben and Jerry's. Have... Okay. <laughs> she said it is performative. Like, okay, at least it's on the website, though. It's performative, perfunctory, but at least we at least they use the word. But now we gotta hold them, now we gotta hold them accountable, right? Like, yeah, yeah. it's twofold, right? It's gotta start somewhere, right? Yeah. So there, there was another question actually, and it was about um, anti-blackness amongst ourselves, right? Um, the question was something about, you know, in this age of of Kevin Samuelness, right? Um, do we have a lot of anti-Blackness sentiments um, toward each other, right? Do our men hate our women? Do our women have disdain for our men? What is it that, with the same younger generation, are you seeing that playing out also? Yeah, so, you know, what's what's really kind of funny about anti-Blackness is that um, you can have Black folks perform it much better than white folks 
ever could. And mm-hmm. once a black person says it, it becomes validated and they become the puppeteers for white America. And and and, and I don't know about other people's institution, but in my academic institution, black folks who and can can reinforce anti-blackness better than any white person that I know. Mm-hmm. Then I know. Then I absolutely know. So yeah, it still exists. We have some work to do there. But to my point, it's like, just like we're talking about women hate men, men hate women. How many of y'all like, how many of y'all, okay, don't raise your hand, don't blink at me, just look straight ahead. But how many of y'all look at something Black Lives Matter and you'd be like, you ain't got to do it all like that. It ain't got to be all like that. That's really kind of no different. Uh-oh, it's tight, but it's right. <laughs> Uh-oh, you know, oh, I ain't going to be able to come back. Well, no, you will be back because I personally, I want them raising hell, right? I don't, I don't want anyone to be comfortable anymore. That's right. how I feel, right? right. And, and I applaud them. I applaud them for having the bravery that us Gen Xers didn't have, right? We right. were just, I don't know what Gen X was doing, but we were asleep of the wheel. But, right. you know, I well, so how's, yeah. how's the saying go? We want to, we want to, we want to uh, disrupt the comforted and we want to comfort the disrupted or something, yes. you know, get the gist. <laughs> Yes, yes. You know, I like to say I've experienced more anti-blackness from black people than I have white people. And it just depends on the circles you move in. But a lot of the things you were talking about, and I'm glad the question came up because anti-blackness is real. And when you talk about the institutional part of it, it's like, yeah, if black people don't really, really wake up, we're doing the same damage to ourselves that other people are doing to us because everything you've said applies to us as well. Go ahead, Katie. What other question you got? I see Shanika. What's up, Shanika? Has a question too. All right. Do you want to ask Shanika's? Um, no, you got, you got uh, it. Okay. Well, Shanika's was the one about anti-blackness. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, it absolutely was. And it was about the, you know, do our black men hate black women? It was interesting when I was actually getting the um, the crowd the crowd warmer together, I was thinking about that, you know, Tupac's the, um, Keep Your Head Up song, which mm. talks about black men and black women, right? Black men supporting black women. And I had a thought about Kevin Samuel just reading those lyrics and thinking about those lyrics. So Tupac was talking about it 30 years ago. 30, yes, that's 30 years ago, people, just in case right. you're wondering. Well, you know, you guys have just gave a perfect segue to the event that we have coming up on September 8th. I got to give a shout out. I've actually already talked to Dr. Marsh and she's going to come back. And Katie, you already know on our um, dating in 2022 stories and adventures from ladies who've heard it all before. Yes, Dr. Chris will be joining us for that session. And you already do you want to tell us anything about that event? Because I know one of your friends is going to be participating as well. Anything you want to, you know, say about that event that we have going on? I do. You know, I think it's I think it's really interesting in that there are some different perspectives when it comes to men and women, black women and black black men and black women about what it means to, I think, court or date each other, right? And in how to communicate and and where we're coming from in terms of our perspective on life and where we're getting our um, cues as to how to behave. And so the women that are going to be with us in that upcoming session, it's going to be really interesting to hear them. And, and I'd love to see men and women at that event, because I think the men, this is an all-female panel. We've never had an all-female panel talking about dating. So that in and of itself is going to be awesome. We've got um, we've got some very uh, let's say feisty 
characters mm-hmm. who are going feisty, entertaining. I indeed. told you Dr. Chris was bad. So yeah. you know, if she's going to be there talking about telling stories, you know she's going to have some stories, right? It's, it's oh, going to be quite a charismatic panel of, of women. And I think it would be great to get a lot of guys in there asking questions and just listening to what's going on in the minds of a lot of women that are out there, out there dating or out there intentionally not dating because of some foolishness that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So back back to the topic. For thanks for that segue. So that's going to be on um, the eighth of next month. So it's about three, four weeks from now. So look for that email, and it's a preview in the current email. If you got it tonight, any more other questions from Dr. Chris? Because she has another segment tonight. Dr. Chris, thank you. Let me do my exit because you know this has been an awesome moment. But I wanted to I wanted to just comment really quick about like the hatred between men and women. So I'm on. I have to do a podcast later on today. I signed. I was in LA and I signed up for it. It's 11 o'clock my time. I'm like Jesus, help me, give me strength. This is actually decaf. I don't drink caffeinated coffee. It's just for fun. But hopefully, I can stay awake for 11 o'clock. But I was talking, we were doing like some prep for the podcast and we were talking about black women and black men and so on and so forth. And, you know, they had they asked this question about whether or not there really is a sex ratio imbalance. Are there more black women than there are black men? And my argument was that, you know, you can lie with statistics any which way you want to. Statistics can tell you whatever you want to tell you. So if you're talking about college age, bachelor's degree or higher, yes, women, black women outnumber black men. If you're talking about Overall, from zero to 106, there's probably less of a disparity between the two. But if you're talking about college educated and beyond, there definitely is a disparity in women, black women outnumber black men. So the conversation kind of centers around like black women, should black women marry up or should black women marry marry down? From the sociological literature and the demography literature, there's this thing called educational homogamy, which suggests that you want to marry somebody with like education. If I have a PhD, I want to marry somebody that also has a professional degree or not. Black women outnumber black men. So I was saying, okay, so in one of my respondents in my book, you had this woman who was an MBA. She made, let's say $200,000. She had a plumber for a boyfriend. He also made about three or 400,000. He made a whole boatload of money. But when she was going to events and holiday parties, she didn't want to take her plumber boyfriend or partner. Part of the reason why she didn't want to take her plumber partner is because she didn't feel like he would fit in. Hmm. But the way in which it was interpreted is that, oh, you're just ashamed of him. I was like, you know, you, that you, you y'all know you'd be there. You'd be like, okay, I'm gonna look that word up and I get home. I don't even know what that word is. I got a PhD. I still don't know. I don't even know what that word is. Like when I say I'm a teetotaler, people don't know what that is. That means I don't consume alcohol. Teetotaler. That's a great SAT word. So I'm sitting there like, I got a PhD and I don't know this word. So maybe the guy's not going to know the words. So out, out of comfort, she didn't want to bring him. The guys on the panel were like, that's just disrespectful. He can hold his own and da 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 So what happens is that we're just looking from different lenses. I don't think it's a hate. It's just that we're looking from very different lenses. And we need to figure out how to celebrate those lenses and not indict one versus the other. Because we are quick to indict somebody and call you a man hater or a ball buster and so on and so forth. And you end up with a player and a pimp and a hoe, all that. So we need to really think about the lenses that we look through. And that helps articulate what we are trying to understand. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Dr. Chris, I got to say that we've got somebody that is quite impressed that you are this hyped off of decaf. So I just yes, to yes. I'd be going to, I go to the PJs and ask them, my baristas for caught, for caffeine. They're, They're lying like, to you. They're mm, lying. Don't get it. Mm, yeah. She, she already knows she is not allowed. Well, no, I've been so excited to be on Southern Soul. I've been looking forward to this Aww. for like weeks. Remember, the book was supposed to be out by now, and I was and I was like, oh, let's do August. My book will be out. Yeah, well, not quite there yet, but it's oh coming goodness. out. 
Well, we're going to have you talk about it next month, you know, when you talk about other things. And we're definitely going to have you come back when your book is ready. And I'm going to be looking for my pre-release copy, right? Because, you know, that's what the host gets, right? So I'll be looking for that. But I just want to say thank you to the speakers tonight because it's been an awesome opportunity. It's been a whirlwind. I know we covered a lot of ground. But, you know, I wanted, you know, whenever I produce a show, I have intent. I always tell people, sometimes you got to read between the lines. Sometimes you got to see what's not being said. And I love about an excellently produced show. There is so much that's not said. There's so much that's not spoken. And people are like, well, why do you ask this question? Why do you ask this question? Well, like I said, you sit back, you slow down, you know, you quit moving fast, you will hear a lot. But our speakers tonight have gave us some awesome stories, blessings. Katie and I got a whole new set of one-liners from tonight, right? <laughs> And we just want to thank you, Dr. Chris. We're looking forward to chopping up with you again. Hopefully you have fun on your next segment. And Katie, now I'm going to play some of my favorite records. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.